Hey everybody, welcome back to Greymalk and Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Now these last few weeks we've been a little off schedule doing some things unfamiliar to the podcast with some professional interviews with Roy Thomas and Steve Englehart and Jed McKay. Uh, we also just released the trial of Quicksilver and we had a really fun step back in time with Bob Quinn reviewing Fantastic Four number 28. But we're going to get back onto the regular X-Men track today and stick on it for a while. So uh, we reviewed a couple weeks ago with Ariana Meyer, X-Men number 35, where the X-Men battled Spider-Man over a silly misunderstanding. Uh, Banshee and Professor X have both been captured by Factor 3 in Europe, and that's basically all you need to know, except maybe Cerebro was a little bit damaged. Uh, This week, we're going to review X-Men number 36 from September 1967. This was written by Roy Thomas with the art team of Ross Andrew and George Bell and letters by Sam Rosen. So we have a different art team on this. If you're reading along with us, you will notice the change in our style. Uh, We are thrilled to have uh, Rob Salerno and Heather back with us. uh, Excuse me, Heather back with us and Rob with us for the first time. And then we've got the special guest, Zach Gorman, with us today as well. So let's each of us introduce ourselves briefly. Let us know your gender pronouns, where we might know you from, And then uh, the question I have for everybody just during introductions is what's the most drastic thing you have ever done for money? Uh, So I'll answer first. My name is Chad. My pronouns are he, him. Uh, I, back in college, remember like working the full-time job and having the student loans in order to support myself. But still, like if I wanted to go on a date or something, I'd have to run down to the blood bank and like give plasma out of my arm to have money for cash for dinner because working full-time and student loans still wasn't enough. Uh, That was probably the thing I thought of uh, the most, which was pretty desperate for early 20s version of me. Uh, Let's go in the order of Heather and then Zach and then Rob. Hey, I'm Heather. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm super famous, obviously. You've heard me on here before, probably. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I'm... I'm a really dramatic person, but I don't think I'm a really drastic person. Um, so I'm not sure if there's anything like super drastic. I guess at one point I was working for jobs. I have done that before. <laughs> um, That's a lot of jobs. Yes, it is. Um, for a lot of my early 20s, I was working at least two jobs. Um, maybe the most... It seems drastic now, but it's really not. Um, I was a custodian at the pro- at the public library. And so I had to be there every morning, except for Thursdays and Sundays at 4.30 a.m. Oof, duh. And so I was going to bed at 7 p.m. every night so I could get up at, you know, 3. Except for the nights that, because it was when I was first starting roller derby as well. And so when I had derby practice, I was going to bed at about midnight and waking up at 3 and so that was fun. I did that for about a year and a half. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's not okay. <laughs> and then Zach, do you want to go next? Sure. Um, I'm Zach Gorman. He, him. Uh, I, as far as like, the, I, I think there's a couple of answers. Um, there's sort of like the more honest one, which is that when I was a teenager, I was one of those people who worked at um, Hot Dog on a Stick at my mall where I would dress up in like the colorful uniform and like you have to do this whole like performance thing where you like squash the lemonade. I worked a lot of terrible jobs um, when I was younger. Uh, but probably the funniest thing, the funniest answer to that question is that I did some storyboards for an ICP video. 
um, which was the follow-up to their, I don't know if anyone remembers like the ICP, the Insane Clown Posse, if you're not familiar. I, I don't know, I'm from Detroit, so it's like, you know, you just, you expect everyone to know what you're talking about. But uh, the uh, the follow-up to the video Miracles, which was like their really silly one that got everyone talking, they like parodied it on SNL with their follow-up video. Like a friend of mine was was doing the editing, who did the editing for that, like called me in, asked if I would do some storyboards for it. And I was like, sure, I was had no, you know, regular job at the time and i think that's probably that's probably the funniest the funniest answer but um i don't know how desperate it was it's i mean it's not it's not it's just it's just great that i got to work for the insane clown posse for a that's a crazy story uh, then rob uh, i i'm uh rob salerno uh my pronouns are he him um actually zach now that you mention it uh miracles has even been parodied in an x-men comic uh, one of Quentin Quire's t-shirts is, uh, says in the Wolverine, the X-Men comics says, Magneto, how does he work? <laughs> um, so I'm a playwright and uh, journalist and uh, used to be a performer and I'm probably um, uh, best known if at all in, in X-Men fandom circles for uh, my blog, Iceman is a Homosexual, in which I am uh, rereading every Iceman appearance in chronological order, um, sort of uh, chronicling um, the hidden subtext of, of all of his appearances from 1963 forward um, that, clue, that should have clued us in that uh, he was gay this whole time. Um, and I guess uh, I was trying to think of like the most desperate thing I've done for money because uh, I like was the sort of person who like I take any job just to make a buck um, all the time, mostly so I could afford my comic book habit. But um, when I was first getting started in theater, I uh, went out on my first uh, national indie uh, fringe festival summer theater tour which uh, is this thing in Canada where um, there's these festivals all across the country where you put on a, you, you just, you take your show, you put on a show uh, and you just keep the box office and you like, all of your costs are just like what it costs you to put up on the show. And uh, all your revenue is just whatever you can get out of the, the audience there. And uh, I was performing um, on uh, in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, which uh, if you've never been, they call it the Paris of the Prairies. Um, it is a very small town and uh, very lovely, but not a theater town. And I think we were there for two weeks and we probably grossed about a thousand dollars that I had to, you know, deduct my expenses from and then split with my partner. Uh, so I was pretty desperate for money. And uh, one weekend I went out to um, the, the one gay bar in, uh, I think not just Saskatoon, but in all of Saskatchewan, uh, which I believe was called Divas. And I was just there to have a drink, but uh, when I got there, I found out that they were having an underwear contest. And I was like, you know what? I am not above shaking my booty in my underwear for a crowd of drunks in Saskatoon. And um, uh, I came in second and won 50 Canadian dollars, which is about 36 American dollars. <laughs> Believe it or not, I vacationed in Saskatoon once on purpose. And while I was there, I must have had 50 different locals who were all so stupid friendly. They'd be like, where are you from? And I'd say, United States. And they'd say, we're glad you're here, but what are you doing here? Like, <laughs> and ironically, I went to that same gay bar and there was a drag show and there were 30 people in the audience. And at one point, the drag queen, the only one, said, shout out to all of my coworkers from Costco. And the entire room but me was like, woo! <laughs> It was a such time. a Saskatoon story. I, I have to say, the Saskatchewan people are the friendliest people in Canada. 
I've I've been like to lots of small towns in Saskatchewan, and I'm always just surprised by how nice everybody is there. I'll I'll tell you more about my Saskatoon stories sometime. I had a good time there. Uh, we're going to spend the first part of our podcast uh, interviewing uh, Mr. Zach Gorman. Zach, what an honor to have you here. Now, I launched this podcast last year, and I was reading Marvel Infinite Comics and saw your Fantastic Four Infinity book, and uh, and then I was like, wait, this is the guy that did Great Lakes Avengers. And then I went back and reread your Great Lakes Avengers run, which was so much fun. And then I found your email and here we are. So I'm so glad you are here with us. Uh, to open today, tell us a little bit about your career, what you're doing now. And then let's take a step back. Uh, how did you become an artist? How did you start working uh, with some of the bigger companies like Marvel? Tell us some of your history. Oh, yeah, where should I start? Um, so I guess like what most people originally knew me from was uh, doing a webcomic series called Magical Game Time. That was sort of where I got all my work that sort of spiraled out of that. Um, that's sort of where it all started. And they were just like webcomics. Um, it was kind of early in the days of when Tumblr was just kind of starting to really take off and become a thing. So I was kind of right place at the right time. And I was posting these like video game fan comics, um, you know, uh, with like animated GIF animations, which was kind of like the, and I, I do say GIF, I'm not a GIF guy. I, I'm just a diehard, I'll, I'll ride or die GIF. So like, I don't, that's it, I'm, I say GIF. Um, <laughs> so I was doing that and uh, and it was kind of, I think it was just right place at the right time. The animation was kind of a novelty and uh, and they really like resonated. And so they, those still get circulated. Like every once in a while, like someone I know will like be like, oh, you see that your comic was uh, up on the front page of Reddit again. I was like, but this is like 10 years old plus at this point. But um, from there, I ended up in that circle of people, a lot of other like cartoonists I know um, who were, you know, part of this early wave of like, it's funny, you kind of joke about it, like the animation industry, these like early adventure time storyboard tests that like everybody did. And I, I was one of those people. And through that, I ended up getting other animation work. I didn't get, I never worked on Adventure Time, the show, but I worked on like the comic series a little bit, did a couple things for that. And then um, that's kind of how I sort of started getting into like comics, um, sort of more mainstream comics too. I did some stuff for like Oni Press. Um, and then uh, I, I don't remember how Great Lakes Avengers, I think Great, Great Lakes Avengers, when that happened, it was just like, I just got an email out of the blue. I never, um, I'm like the worst person to ask about their career path. Cause it's like, I don't know, once in a while, someone emails you with a cool job and you just say yes. And that's like, it's that's the worst advice you could ever give someone. Um, but that's kind of how everything has sort of happened um, for me. And it sort of just, you know, sort of snowballed from those like original web comics. Um, and then in the last couple of years, I did some, I've been doing more and more writing and less art. I don't do a lot of art anymore, even though that was sort of where I started out. Um, now, Nowadays, I do mostly writing, and I'm currently writing uh, freelance for a video game thing that I've been on for like almost a year and a half total at this point. There have been some breaks in there, but um, that's kind of the my main day day job gig at this point. Um, yeah, so that's what? that's kind of it. I, and like the, and the, again, the Fantastic Four thing was like you know an editor who I'd worked with before just emailed me and asked if I wanted to do it. So yeah, sure. I, I don't do a lot of stuff for um, for comics anymore, but if someone asks me, I usually, I usually say yes. So I mean, yeah, if you're making a living doing what you love, and you mentioned you got a toddler at home, right? Like, yeah, yeah, I got. He's almost three now, so that's so. Yeah, work has been very like we have. I haven't done a lot of work in the last couple, like two years. It's just been really piecemeal. I mean, I've been doing this video game gig, and then everything else has just been kind of fumbling around in the darkness and trying to keep my head above water between pandemic and having a brand new toddler. It's just been a lot, but. 
Your first project at Marvel ended up being Great Lakes Avengers, which is uh, a very obscure choice for someone to begin with, but it was a series. Like you got a good seven issues out of it, right? Uh, yeah. Tell us about how that came to be. If you remember, how did you get that particular title? Yeah, well, he did, um, I think Tom or someone, Tom Brevoort or someone, I, I don't remember if it was him or if it was, but anyway, I, I think it was, it was him and like, kind of emailed me and said like here's a couple of the things we're looking at and we think you might be a match for um you know what you know what it was it was originally he had asked me if i was interested in doing this um slapstick book i think and oh, then sure. i said and i said yeah because i love i love like my favorite thing about like marvel stuff was always like the worst characters possible i always love like the loser oddball characters slapstick um, is on that list <laughs> yeah and, and actually i think my pitch for slapstick was actually like really good um but for, i don't remember why it ended up not working out and then shortly th shortly thereafter it was like well these are some other things we're looking at would you be interested in like great lakes avengers and like, yeah sure so um my first decision was was to like move the team to Detroit because I was like, well, I'm from like Michigan. I'm like, and they're Great Lakes. Like, I don't know, this is fine. Uh, no one's gonna get too mad about this, and I don't think anyone did care. I don't think anyone like read it. Honestly, I don't think I don't think it like did well at all. It was very, it was like a super weird match um, in a lot of ways, and things just kind of never really came to with that series. Like, I honestly, I like I have my memory of working on it is is pretty scattered, but. I do know that I went in with this pitch and my pitch was like, I'm like almost, it's almost like a huge relief that they said no to it because it was this hyper meta thing where I feel like it would have been, um, to call it, to say it would have had a lot of like bad faith interpretations is like probably fair, but they may have been like also totally fair faith interpretations. So I feel like the fact that like Tom talked me out of it a little bit was like, cause it, so the, the general, like the thing that I wanted to do initially, and I feel like I did a really bad job of presenting my idea for it. And, and where it ended up was still kind of, was still pretty fun, but, and I still got to work some of those ideas in, but um, I wanted to do this thing that was like, it was sort of, it was sort of like a play on like the idea of like what Marvel at the time would have thought was like a very diverse book. Um, and it was sort of like, so the, the intentional, I feel like it, there was a chance it may have come across as like me making fun of like representation and diversity, but that was never the goal. The goal was like, I was like, the, the idea was like, um, sort of the joke was on Marvel where it was like, because uh, because the thing about the Great Legacy Avengers is kind of neat is they're actually like a very, they have like, you know, they have a gay character, they have a, like, they're, they're a cool team. And they're kind of interesting from that perspective too. Big Bertha, like, you know, non, uh, you know, body positive. I don't know, whatever, however you want to phrase that. But like, um, and and I think like, so there was there was a really cool spin on it that I saw there and I was like, oh, this would be like super fun and interesting. And I feel like they were like, it was kind of like, look, this is like dangerous waters you're treading and like, we don't want to do that. And I was like, no, I totally get it. And it's like, it ultimately would have been very much like making fun of Marvel, the company. And I feel like, that's a weird pitch. So like I had never written anything for them and it's super weird to go in there and be like, so I want to basically write, write something that's sort of like a fuck you to Marvel. And they were like, no, <laughs> not like, not that. Cause, because like, I just, they have this very like sort of, um, especially at the time, like, I mean, it's been a few years. I don't know. I, I, I don't really keep up with it that much anymore. Um, but at the time it felt like they had this very sort of like tokenism idea about diversity and it felt it felt sort of artificial and, and I, I hope i'm not like i'm not 
I'm just like, again, I'm going to get in trouble. I make fun of Disney all the time too, where I'm like always, I'm always like hypercritical of Disney online. I don't know why they hire me for anything, but um, yeah. So anyway, it was, it was a very like over the top uh, pitch and, and then it ended up getting like taken, stepped back into what became uh, the current book, which is more of just like a, let's have fun with this, I guess. And just kind of like uh, be silly about it. Um, but a couple of those ideas kind of, kind of still got in yeah i thought it was a really fun series actually did it require a lot of research on your part in advance because these are characters that are kind of in the shadowy corners or the more obscure corners uh, i mean you're saying you love these these extra characters of marvel uh, did it require a lot of research to begin do you recall um i don't i didn't do a lot of research um i did enough to kind of know like what they were all about um but i always like wanted to Kind of just like assume that that stuff was there and it's canon and whatever i'm not gonna like uh do anything to like outwardly refute it but i also want just like something that i can just characters they're not like they're also not the best like established characters because they're so obscure it's like well you kind of have the freedom to sort of do what you want with it um yeah and i think especially with like um the the doorman thing i had like an idea that i thought was super cool and like tied into some cosmic stuff i never got to develop it unfortunately it just sort of peters out because it was only lasted a few issues um and so i kind of just like assumed i was sort of starting from scratch with a lot of it um but i loved i also love to like comb the i was always trying to comb the catalog and see like well who's like a weirdo that i could pull into this you know and <laughs> um so i did that a couple times there were a couple like cameos from like no names you know that i worked in so the the X-Men are the central focus for mutant characters, obviously, but the Marvel Universe is full of mutant characters that have nothing to do with the X-Men. And the Great Lakes Avengers is a team full of those. So for those of us that are like kind of Marvel completists or X-Men completists, there's a lot of mutants you may not have ever heard of that frankly could end up on Krakoa uh, nowadays. And Zach, I'm not sure if you're following the current comics, the X-Men have formed their own nation on the island of Krakoa, the living island. And so they it's like mut mutants have automatic citizenship. So the Great Lakes Avengers could end up there. Uh, and I'm actually most excited to get Heather's reaction here. <laughs> comics are so much fun. Uh, the Great Lakes Avengers is made up of Mr. Immortal who literally cannot die. Uh, we have Big Bertha who is a supermodel who can bulk up to blob size and has super strength and durability but then she's bulimic and she gets back to normal size by making herself throw up that's in some of the books yeah right that's, that's what i'm saying like you're starting from a very loaded place uh with some of these things you're starting from a very loaded place but yeah um there's a there's a character named doorman who is an african-american character and his power is literally to turn himself into a door and you can just walk through him uh but also he's the agent of oblivion he delivers people into the afterlife which is a weird thing about him uh and then you have a character named dinah space soar dinah soar who is a pink bird lady who can't talk but she died uh uh I think that's the primary cast, right? Am I missing? Oh, and then Flatman, of course, who's yeah. like who's like a piece of paper, except Mr. Fantastic, but only two-dimensional. Right. Uh, Heather, what are your reactions initially to hearing the description of this team? Well, my very first reaction when you said Big Bertha was to immediately think of 
Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure. <laughs> because for some reason it was bringing to mind Large Marge when you said Big Bertha. Um, but also that's hella problematic. I do not appreciate what that is teaching about um, self-image to women. Don't don't make examples bulimic. That's <laughs> depending on how the writer portrays her. Obviously, yes. Sure. Yeah, I, yeah. I was, I was, my, 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 my take on it was like, I was like, I'm never gonna have her be thin ever. Like, she's just decided. I think in, I think in the, the series that I was doing, I was like, she's just gonna stay. She's just gonna stay big. Like, that's just that's that's just what I'm doing. I don't care. Yeah. You can right? just erase that other bit. That's right. That's stupid. Yeah. <laughs> It makes me think of uh, 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 Zach. Have you ever taken your kid to Chuck E. Cheese? Uh, no, no, because because like he's been grown up in the pandemic, so like we just haven't, oh, yeah, we yeah. haven't, yeah, we just haven't. I wish there's a game. My kids are a little older now, but there's a game at Chuck E. Cheese called Big Bertha, where you're trying to like knock this lady's teeth out with bean bags. And I always think <laughs> the Great Lakes Avengers. <laughs> That's so dark. That's a dark That's... game for Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> God. Uh, so as you picked up these characters and you just got to tell kind of like an office comedy uh, with with some great silly kind of mutant characters who don't get a lot of exposure. Uh, do you remember what much of the fan reaction to the series was at the time? And uh, secondary question, what was it like to work with Will Robson? Um, yeah, I I didn't pay much attention to what people were saying about it. I don't know. Like I've, I, I grew up as like a very diehard um, comics fan and like a really mostly Marvel stuff. And, uh, and then, you know, by that point in my life, I kind of like moved, like gotten out of it. Like I hadn't really been, I wasn't currently reading anything. And I, and I kind of felt like, like the only thing I'm going to read or the only thing, the only things I'm going to take away if I read about like reviews or whatever is just going to be the negative. So like, I don't care, whatever, I'm just going to do it. And uh, I saw the sales numbers, you know, I mean, I saw like <laughs> it wasn't doing well, but like, other than that, I didn't really know. And I'm and and I do think um, in regards to Will, I think that um, it, it was interesting. because like, we didn't have like a lot of like really direct like working the working relationship was like sort of passed through the editor mostly I mean we like you know talked a little bit here and there but um I think it was sort of a mismatch for the other problem with this initial pitch I had that was very like heady and meta and um like it kind of like once he got brought on as artist too because this was what I had been pitching this and I wanted to do this very like um this is very conceptual let's just say like like version of it and then when he saw when I saw his art and I was like, oh, that's not going to work. That's not going to read like because because he, he was he was like new at the time and his stuff is like very cartoony. And they they clearly like I think the way that Marvel likes to do these things is like when it's a book like this that they think like, well, it probably won't do that. Well, <laughs> but they kind of like try out new talent. They're like, all right, well, this guy's never written like for us before. This guy's never drawn for us before. So like, let's just see what happens and kind of throw them together. But I do think it was like a little bit of a mismatch for like tonally what I wanted to do with it so I tried to I actually ended up I feel like kind of adjusting and making it sillier that was also another part of it was like all right let's, let's lighten it up a little bit and like go a little bit a little bit wackier and not less like um heavy with the sort of social commentary or whatever um yeah. I don't I don't want to make it think like I don't want to make it seem like I was like uh I'm very um I'm like as far left as you can get for like a for like a white suburban dad. I'm very um it was very it was very far left was the was the tone the tone of what I was doing and very like anti-corporate and very anyway. It turns out that's a bad pitch sometimes. If you're if you're a nobody, they don't want they don't want you to pitch shit like that. They just don't. Like they and it's like fair 
like I think like no one was like shitty about it. I mean, like the, and and he was and like thing is like they were right. Like ultimately, I think they were totally right about it. Like it would have been, it would have come off wrong. I think. Um, but like, uh, I do think that that was one of the issues with with working with Will. And I don't mean to, I'm not like trying to throw the guy under the bus at all. I just think it was like a weird match for the for the way that I like pictured the series. And then so it kind of like did it. So it took a different turn anyway. And you know. It was kind of never exactly what I wanted it to be, I'll say. Yeah, yeah. You got to bring in Captain America's old girlfriend, Connie Ferrari, who's also yeah. very obscure. <laughs> I had to dig. That was one of the ones I had to dig for. I had to dig for <laughs> Connie Ferrari. Uh, that was, yeah, that is, that is a fun, that was a fun one. I forgot, I forgot about that. Uh, I remember that she's like on the first couple pages of your book. And I'm like, oh my God, they brought back Connie Ferrari, which is such a great name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that was like 90% of it. It was like, I just like that name. And I knew I, I knew I wanted to have like some sort of like feeling of like corporate presence, which was kind of like a holdover was like, let's have some suits in there that are kind of going to represent like the anyway. But I think that's where that came from. There's a, so there's a classic scene when Dan Slott wrote The Great Lakes Avengers, I think in 2005 or so. Uh, I, I haven't read this in a bit, so I'm going to get it slightly wrong. But Mr. Immortal has realized that they're mutants. And at the, around the same time, Flatman is getting ready to come out to the team as gay. And Flatman's like, I have a big announcement. And Mr. Immortal goes, yeah, I have something to say first. I'm homo superior. And Flatman's like, you stole my thunder. Because <laughs> one's coming out as a mutant and the other was going to come out as gay. And it's delicious. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, yeah Flatman is like, uh, I'm sure it's different now because I, mean, I haven't read comics in years. I don't know how many like out characters there are in marvel to, today i don't know i don't know who's i don't know who's i don't know who's goes what way in marvel anymore like there's a lot is Iceman oh, okay. gay now. okay yeah so there's that. a there's I'm a lot of out gay characters now in fact there's there's teams in the x-men that have three and four members who are queer on it now it's a it's a very different time to be a reader yeah and i feel like you know when this book was happening it was sort of like it felt like it was sort of on the cusp of that. Like there still wasn't like, I remember like when I was looking into like Flatman, I was like, there still wasn't, there was like one or two other, like this was like not that long ago. Yeah, know, maybe, yeah. maybe, it's, maybe it's just, maybe it's just have kind of happened really fast. I don't know. Yeah. I, I think, think a lot. the X-Men line has always been more queer than the rest of the Marvel line. So I don't think there have been like that many queer Avengers characters. Oh. Um, but, uh, but yeah, definitely uh, the, the Great Lakes Avengers have, um, uh, that just they, they kind of straddle a whole bunch of different worlds at, at Marvel. In fact, that was a running joke from the 90s and the early 2000s was that they kept reinventing themselves as like, oh, we're going to be the Thunderbolts adjunct team. We're the Lightning Rods. We're the Great Lakes Initiative. At one point, they were the Great Lakes X-Men. So and the champions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lot of fun. Are you, are you a GLA fan, Rob? Um, I... Uh, so the first time I, I ever read them was when they appeared in uh, Joe Kelly's Deadpool. And I thought this was a really fun concept. Um, and I think that's actually the first place where um, Flatman is sort of hinted at being gay. It's it's kind of, um, I love Joe Kelly's Deadpool run. It's one of my favorite runs, but going back and rereading it, um, you know, as a, a, an adult now, it feels, uh, there's a lot of stuff that hasn't aged well. And his take on Flatman is one of them. Unfortunately, I think it, it's it's one of those run, the, those like hint hint nudge nudge things. Like, come on, you, we know you're gay, but you're not coming out. Um, but uh, I'm I'm glad that it kind of you know carried on, and Dan Slott had him come out, and uh, the other writers have been able to run with it. 
going forward. And um, I, I've read a bunch of them. I, I have to confess, I didn't know about your Great Lakes Venture series. This popped up during this brief period where I stopped uh, going. To, I was moved. I'd moved to Los Angeles and I stopped going to a regular comic shop and I uh, hadn't yet got uh, Marvel Unlimited. And so I I just read it this week and it's lovely. Thank, uh, the great oh, job. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I, I feel like I feel like weirdly embarrassed about it now, just because it feels like it was such a half, such an, like an unfinished thing, and it was like ah, I never really got to. You did forget a character, a character I introduced to the GLA, which probably no one will ever use again, which was Good Boy. Yeah, I was <laughs> so, gonna bring her up actually. I, mean, no ever, I was, I, I thought that was like the idea of a like a like a real life furry uh, joining the team. I thought was like perfect. That was my pitch. I was like, I just want someone who's who's a furry that can like you know. She transforms into into her character, and her character happens to be a ripped he wolf, a ripped sexy he wolf. And it was a, uh, yeah, it was. I I love I loved that like being able to introduce. That was honestly my favorite part about working on it was was that I had a chance to introduce characters that again will probably. I mean, there's only like one or two because it was such a short run. But the idea that like to add a character or something to like to the to the universe somewhere is just really funny to me because fans are so meticulous that like there's gonna be a wiki entry that's gonna have all of her information on it for, you know, forever. Like that's part of it now. You can't get rid of that. No matter how, re- how many reboots you do in the universe, that'll be there. Yeah, you had a lot of fun. You had the villains of Nine Rouge and Dr. Nod and the Bod Squad. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And like the, the name Rouge is like, because that's like a Detroit thing. Um, the, the There's like a, there's a Nain Rouge like parade in Detroit and it celebrates like the this sort of like devil figure that supposedly haunts Detroit and causes it all of it ills and has been around for like forever like this is this goes way back um and so it's a whole thing there there's this like devil character they call the name rouge and uh and i, I actually know, I wanted to do, yeah just make a little city work a little bit of the city lore into there yeah i actually was going to bring up good boy because good boy trended trended a little bit in the queer community in that you have mm-hmm. a female character who can turn into a male wolf right and yeah the, the kind of gender bendy notion of of that uh attracted attracted a bit of community although the character never came out as queer there was that kind of vibe in the transformation itself which was really great actually yeah i mean like again i I think there's this also inherent problem where I want to do characters like that. Um, but there's this issue where I am just like a straight white guy. <laughs> and so there's always like a little bit of like, like, uh, you know, I, I, I worry about like, Oh, but am I doing it correctly? And do I need like more? And, and, uh, you know, for me personally, if I'm, if I'm doing my own, like I, I have, I hire sensitivity readers, but like when you're going through like Marvel, it's like, um, I don't know. I, I mean, I guess they, that's what their editors are there for to catch things like that. But I do, I do worry about it, especially when I'm working at a company that's like so visual, like that's going to, it's going to be out there. And, um, you know, and I, I didn't want to like do that incorrectly, I guess. Like I, there were some revisions on that character too, because initially like I, I wanted it to be, if I had, and if I had had a longer story to work with, I probably would have done this is having that character, you know, be trans, um, you know, that like, that was sort of like, well, her interior was, you know, the, this male character. And then, you know, that like, sort of like that she was, you know, still in her egg phase or whatever, as they call it, but like, you know, like, and that was kind of like, that was kind of, I have a lot, I have a lot of trans friends and stuff. So that was always like, um, yeah, I think that, was people, that was something I wanted to do, but I also felt ill-equipped for as a, yeah, as I think a, people got some white, of those vibes though. I, I think people interpreted that character that way, which is lovely to see that representation. I mean, that, that is, that is, that was the goal. So like, you know, I just never, I never got there. So I didn't, you know, I don't want to, um, 
because it never happened canonically it's like worthless yeah. it's like it's you know it's like it's like it's, it's like Rowling saying that well I mean talk about transphobic but it's like but it's like JK Rowling coming out as as being like well Dumbledore was gay and you're like fuck you you know <laughs> he never he never like you know okay, I was about to get really vulgar um but I won't but anyway, fuck JK Rowling. I have, I know you might have noticed I have a I have a fucking Harry Potter tattoo and I said fuck I I've been wanting to get it covered up. It was what a what a what a thing I never saw coming. I have feelings about that. <laughs> I never saw that shit coming. And like when I was, you know, I was younger and I thought, well, it's like fucking I love these wizards. And now it's like a whole fucking now it's like I have a whatever fucking hate people think I have a hate symbol on me. It was so it just it turned so fast. It was like Jesus. And now I'm stuck with I'll get it covered up one day. Awful people can still create amazing things. However, Uh, the, the original, the original queer identity in America, a lot of it is directly related to the wizard of Oz and the writer and creator of the wizard of Oz was a racist fuck who created this beautiful world where we get to still enjoy that fictional world. And I think it's okay to still like Harry Potter. (laughs) I didn't know that about, um, was it, is it L. Frank Baum or Frank L. Baum? I was going to... L. Frank Baum. L. Frank Wait. Baum. I, I didn't... Yeah, L. Frank, yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know that about him. Yeah, look <laughs> look it up. There's, there's, there's old stuff you can find. Oh, no. Uh, do we... Uh, uh, Heather or, or Rob, do you guys have questions you'd like to ask Zach before we delve into our issue review? I feel like I'm good. Uh, Zach, how fun... Zach, how fun to hear your stories and the behind the scenes stuff. And it's it's great to see you still kind of making it as a writer and an artist, even if it's out of the industry. I hope we see more comics from you, man. I really like your work. Yeah, thanks. Um, probably do more comics at some point. I'll probably just stumble backwards into it again at some point. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. No, that's great. You're, you're making your living doing what you love. That's always the goal, right? So let's delve into, uh, let's delve into X-Men number 36 today. Uh, Now I'm going to presume none of you had read this issue before. Rob, had you? I I, uh, covered it for Iceman as a homosexual a few, uh, uh, last year. (laughs) It's nonsense. (laughs) uh, Let's, let's start out by giving Thomas run. (laughs) This, this stretch of issues is all nonsense let's be honest if you if you listen to my interview with roy thomas he basically admits yeah the x-men wasn't my favorite i just you know (laughs) i just threw some stuff in there (laughs) well it it comes across in every issue that he is auditioning to write a different series at marvel it's this is the the issue where he's he clearly wants to write iron man He's come up with an Iron Man villain, and he's just shoehorned the X-Men into the story. Well, and we already got Cobalt Man a few issues ago, so... Yep. (laughs) Let's begin with kind of our reactions to the cover. Did you guys have thoughts on the cover? I think the perspective is kind of great. The the side of the building, we get some kind of cool perspective off the side. Uh, Meccano is holding Cyclops ever so sensually in the air. I actually mentioned that when I was reading this, sitting next to my partner. I was like look at this. I was like, it's, I said, McConnell lives. And I said, and he's holding Cyclops very suggestively. And my partner mentioned Iceman's stance over there. And I was like, yeah, he's sitting there thinking, oh, that should have been me. (laughs) He's like, exactly. (laughs) And to me, it looks like he's giving Cyclops a wedgie. He's got, he's got his hand like under the belt. Yeah. And he's lifted him up like hoisted him like an atomic wedgie over his head. McKenna's name has little nuts and bolts in it. 
Annie spells it with a K, so you know it's scary. Yes. <laughs> Zach, what were also, you going to say? It's also not scary at all, though. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I, I liked the cover. I didn't. Not, I had nothing specific to add. I'm sorry. I was. Uh, I was just going to comment. I, you know, I'm going to pull up my phone too, so I can so I can keep an eye on it, so I can follow along with the pages. I had to buy this, by the way, on the new Comixology app, which is awful. Just awful to like. I hate the new Comixology. Let me just throw that in there. Comixology, you screwed up. Uh, try again. But anyway, so I bought. I bought it. But I'm gonna. I'm gonna pull it up now so I can follow along. My understanding, and this is probably something I should research before commenting on, but I think Amazon has owned Com Comixology for a while, and they're now changing the way that they have to do the book purchases. And yeah, it looks a lot different than it did previously. Yeah, and I saw people on Twitter saying that oh, I can't even like navigate my old my library, all these books I bought. It's like kind of useless now and that's that sucks that's yeah it's, it's frustrating uh zach let me ask you as we're delving in what's your relationship with as a fan with the x-men oh i mean that was honestly like probably my first real like superhero love because i mean i was growing up in so i'm 38 now so like when i was growing up it was like the right time i mean that was prime time it was like when i was in like elementary school they were everywhere it was like that was when the cartoons started that was like the 90s boom where it was like and I, I got really, I remember like also moving through like middle school or whatever. I don't remember exactly what year this came out, but I, I also got like way into uh, Gen X. I was like a huge Gen X fan. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I started on X-Men early um, and I got brought in by the same stuff as everyone else. Like, man, Wolverine's cool. And then you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you, and then you just kind of hang around and start getting into the rest of it. That was that was always my go to more than anything else at Marvel. That was the X-Men universe was, was my stuff. And it's I hate to say that now because I remember so little about it. And I'm going to I'm sure I'm going to say stuff that's completely wrong because we'll I haven't be read comics in so long, too. We'll be here to help you. Uh, and Rob, do you remember what your first, first issue of the X-Men was? Yeah. Um, my first issue of the X-Men was uh, X-Men number four and uh, Uncanny oh, X-Men 282. Okay, I yeah. got two. Uh, it was my birthday and they were like, my mom just went to the comic book, uh, to the bookstore and bought a whole bunch of uh, comic books to throw in like loot bags for everybody. And there were two X-Men comics left over and I read them and I was just like, oh my God, I need all of these from now on. And uh, I haven't stopped buying since. I my was... first, my first was X Force Twenty Seven with the Mutant Liberation Front, and I was like, "Holy shit, there's a whole world here!" And yeah, it was, uh, it was all in from there. Um, as we're beginning in this issue, we have a change in the creative team, uh, but we're going to see a lot of artists and writers kind of popping in and out over the next year of comics. A lot of different people come in to try to make the book work. Uh, we heard Roy talk about this. The, the book was kind of failing and they keep trying new ideas. And so for the next several reviews, there's like, wait, what? Wait, what? Like, <laughs> it just keeps switching it up. Uh, as we're beginning, though, I want to introduce the two new people that are on this issue. We have Ross Andrew on Pencils. Uh, and I had to I had to Google this information, so my apologies if I mess anything up. But Ross Andrew, his real name is Rotislav Andruchkovich, which I'm probably saying incorrectly. Uh, but he lived from 1927 to 1996. He was born in Michigan. He worked six decades in comics for many companies. Uh, he's remembered most for his work on Amazing Spider-Man and The Metal Men and Flash and Wonder Woman. And he's one of the co-creators of The Punisher, which is crazy. Uh, he had a close working relationship with Mike Esposito for a lot of his career. Uh, he was married to Natalie Smithline for 45 years, and he died in an uh, in uh, sorry 1993 of an aneurysm. 1993 or 96? I have two dates written, and I don't know which one is correct. Uh, but yeah, I've seen his name on a lot of comic books. I don't know a lot about him. 
The inker on this book is George Bell. Uh, his real name is George Russos, which you may know him by. He used that name a lot of his publication career. Uh, he lived from 1915 until the year 2000. And he was a prominent inker for multiple decades, I think up to 50 years in comics, uh, working with Jack Kirby on the early FF and Avengers stuff. He was married twice and have four kids. So you'll see those names in comics quite a bit. These are people who are no longer with us. Uh, so when we get interviews on the podcast with people like Roy Thomas and Steve Englehart, uh, it, it, it feels like a, a, a time capsule in a lot of ways because we're hearing stories about these people who aren't around anymore to tell their stories, uh, but we still get to enjoy them. Um, okay, so this issue is called Meccano Lives. Uh, Heather, do you want to take the first five pages, kind of tell us what happens, sure. and then we'll talk about it? So very first, there are burglars at the X-Men house. And Beast has decided that he's going to take them on himself because, you know, why not? And so he's beaten up these two burglars upstairs while the others are downstairs trying to make a plan to go after Professor X, who's a captive of Factor 3. Um, And, you know, while they're sitting there chatting, Beast is still upstairs beating people up. (laughs) And um, and then they're like, okay, we need to go to Europe because that's where he is. That's where Cerebro found him. And let's, we need to figure out how to get there. But Beast is still upstairs because Beast is still beating up burglars. <laughs> and this goes on for like three pages that he's beating up these burglars, which is hilarious to me. Um, and then... He brings them downstairs and he's like, hey, so they came to try to rob us, but they saw me in costumes. So we need to protect our secret identity. So they hook them up to Cerebro. Um, And when the criminals regain consciousness, they're like, hey, we're going to brainwash you. And you never saw us, but you are going to go to the police station and tell them everything you've done. And then... I feel like the last two panels on page four are switched Um, because they're trying to figure out how to get to Europe. And it says the angel calls his parents and they're on a cruise. And so then they go see the jet in the jet hangar and it's out of gas. And so he's like, "Mm, maybe I could call my parents. And so I think that they're. Yeah, but the, the weird thing, like, I noticed that, too. And the weird But also, thing Angel's it, not the one in the plane. Right, right. So <laughs> I think it's, I don't know who, I, I'm not sure who's in the plane, because I don't, I think, like, Beast and Cyclops, it has to be Iceman, but he's wearing a mask for some reason yeah. the in the plane. It seems like just an art mistake. <laughs> yeah, and so those two panels baffle me. But anyway, they don't have... But when he was calling his parents and was like, hey, we need money for Europe, I actually said out loud to my partner while I was reading, I was like, Xavier has like a million jets and helicopters and planes. Why is he asking his parents? And then in the next panel, they're like, oh, let's check the jet. And it's out of gas. (laughs) And then we go back to the criminals because they go to the police station and they're like, here's all the things that we've ever done. And get captured by the police and so then they're still trying the x-men are still trying to find money so they go to the welfare center (laughs) and they're like hey we need money to help out our teacher and the lady's like hmm well 
let me call your parents. And he's like, you can't, they're on a sea cruise. And oh, wait, I shouldn't have said that. And she's like, "Mm, we can't help you. And so they leave also in their limo. (laughs) It's a Rolls Royce. Yeah, the Rolls Royce. (laughs) And um, the people in the welfare center are like, are those the youngsters who wanted a welfare loan? Yeah, and they're driving out in a Rolls Royce. That settles it. It was some sort of college initiation stunt. I knew it all along. (laughs) So I think you've left out something here, something probably. pretty important. Um, there, because it seems to me that between panels two and three on this page, um, Warren and Jean must have smoked a really fat blunt because they look high as fuck <laughs> when they're in the welfare office. Jean's eyes are enormous, and Warren's got like sleepy, droopy eyes going on. <laughs> There's another couple of really funny expressions like that. They're like way too wide-eyed, like later in the book that I remember too. Um, but yeah, like one of the things that uh, that got me here that I couldn't help thinking about is like, so I, this when early in the podcast, like at the start, we said like, what's the most desperate, one of the most desperate things you've done for money? It was like, I also worked at a pawn shop for a brief period of time. Oh. And apparently this would, but the reality is like, this would have served, this would have solved every problem for them. They're in a house full of like valuable shit. Like they could have so easily just gone down to the pawn shop and like sold like a candelabra and gotten enough for like a plane fare. You know I mean? Like, I feel like they weren't thinking, thinking things through very well. There's so many ways they could have made money. So, I mean, we could toss out, we could do five minutes of here's how the X-Men could have got to Europe. Right? <laughs> They could have called the Fantastic Four, who are their friends and have planes. They could have asked, like, there's a, there's a thousand ways that they could have gotten there. Uh, this whole issue is nonsense. Let's let's jump back to page one for a minute. For our foot fetishists out there, <laughs> you get basically a, a full splash page of Beast's giant feet being fed to a man. If you are into it, that is your, this is your page. What did you guys think about these robbers uh, in the X-Mansion and Beast's antics against them? I mean, I just love that the X-Men are all in the basement. They can clearly hear there's some kind of ruckus upstairs. Uh, Things are being smashed. Uh, uh, Whatever, Beast can handle it. Uh, it's it's probably nothing. It, it could be the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. It could be it could be Tyrannus has come back to attack. Oh God! Or fucking Juggernaut who was just there. Yeah, I love the I love the power scaling that exists here because I feel like when when I was a kid reading X Men or whatever, it was all like they were just like crazy powerful. And here it's like Beast kind of almost gets it handed to him by these like two lowlifes who just stumble into the mansion knowing nothing. And they like they get a couple licks in where it's like you might think like oh they might take Beast down, which is really really funny. To me. Like I hit him in the in the face with like a what is like a bag or something. I think it's just a bag of wrenches on whatever he's holding. I think it's the old lady's purse. Okay. <laughs> they and you can tell that these two men are criminals by their haircuts. Like yes. right away, that's mm-hmm. how you know they're bad guys. Uh, yeah, they picked the wrong mansion, man. Yeah, and later in this issue, Meccano like flat out says Beast is the most powerful X Man. <laughs> At this point, like in the comics, I'm not even sure at this point if it's ever been clearly established that Beast has any kind of super strength because he mostly like just climbs walls and does jumps and and, and tricks uh, in the Silver Age. It's not like I think like the the strongest I've ever seen him is one time I saw him bend a pipe in one of the Neil Adams issues. But uh, it's just all over the place, like what the X-Men can and can't do in the Silver Age. 
so Cerebro in these early pages does two things we have never seen it do before. Number one, it pinpoints Professor X's location specifically to the Alps and shows up like on a little topographical map or something. Then they hook these criminals up to it and it like hypnotizes and like changes their brains, which is not something that has ever been shown to do before. Professor X can do that anytime with this mutant power. Maybe Jean is like subconsciously using her telepathy that she doesn't realize she has here yet. And I don't, cause I don't think we've ever seen Cerebro alter anyone's memories ever again. It's a weird thing for it to do. I thought so too. I w- like, I didn't, I didn't realize that was a thing. And I just kind of accepted like, well, I don't know, maybe they've talked about this before. And I just, I never knew that um, like back in the early days. So like, it's even funnier if like they, they like assume that the X-Men also don't know exactly how this thing works without professor X. And they just like fucking go for it. They're like, I don't know. Let's hook these guys up and try to wipe their memories. Like they probably, yeah. these guys are probably just like going to be like basically lobotomized for the rest of their lives. Like they don't really know what they're doing. Like, fuck it, whatever. We got to get to Europe. Let's see them in the crack. <laughs> Sorry. I, I was going to say, let's see them in the Krakoan era. They're just drooling in a cell somewhere all these years later. <laughs> um, I think this could have been the makings of a classic comedy issue of X-Men. Like there are so many moments in this whole issue that should be laugh out loud funny. Like the X-Men going to the welfare office to ask for welfare for their teacher. <laughs> like it's it, it clearly like the two whitest X-Men, the the most privileged X-Men, uh, like not just, you know, Warren being the son of billionaires, but uh, Jean's parents are, you know, college professors. Uh, she grew up in Scarsdale. Like these are, these are two people who have no clue how anything in the system works. And so just- I think, I think you gave us the out for this issue. We're going to assume that after the criminals were brainwashed on page four, the X-Men all got really fucking high on marijuana. And for the rest of the issue, they're just making decisions based on that. So first, it's let me call mom and dad for money. Second, it's let's try to fly a plane. And Iceman puts on a little blue mask and climbs inside. (laughs) It doesn't work. This is how pilots dress. Then they dress up in suits and dresses and ties, driving their Rolls Royce to the welfare office and ask for cash while mentioning that his parents are on a sea cruise. (laughs) And we're not even done yet. This is just the first couple pages. It does. It makes me wonder, though, where do the X Men normally get their gas from? Like for the plane, do they do they do they have a fuel tank on campus? Do they does do they get regular deliveries? Do they have credit? I don't know. It's one of those great unanswered questions. It I must think. be something that Charles takes care of, or has someone else take care of if they don't know what they're doing. He's, he's got like twelve helicopters. They gotta have something out there to take care of them. Yeah. And the, the thing I keep thinking about, which I think would be super funny is like the second, the second that he writes, like, even if the welfare thing had kind of gone a little bit, a couple steps further, the second that he writes his name down on the, and it's Warren Worthington, the third, you would have been like, fuck you leave. Like just <laughs> Warren Worthington, the third, you're not, you can't be poor with that name. It's like impossible. Like you're obviously super rich leave. <laughs> Get out of here with your 6% body fat and your green fucking suit and your Rolls Royce and go. <laughs> There's a line of people outside starving, bitch. Get out. <laughs> Good Lord, the privilege of it all. Okay, so we're assuming the X-Men are high for the rest of the issue. Is everybody okay with that? That's going to make me Obviously. more comfortable. <laughs> I think that's a good assumption for the X-Men in general, but especially in the Silver Age. Well, we're about to get to pages six and seven. Rob, do you want to take over the next section for us? Tell us what happens. 
Yeah, um, I'm just going to uh, uh, skip ahead, spoiler for a second, because I think this is important. Uh, we eventually established that the amount of money that they need to raise is $1,500, which I just plugged into the inflation calculator to figure out what that would be in today's money. That is $13,388, which they are, this, and this is how they're trying to raise it. First, by going to the welfare office. Uh, Next, they drive into the city. And uh, and, and quickly, just, they're trying to get four same day air tickets to the Alps. Yes. (laughs) That's the goal here. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) <laughs> five, five same day tickets. Oh, that's uh, true. Five. Pardon me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, which, you know, air travel was a lot more expensive back then. Uh, so uh, understandably, but um, so their, their plan is uh, they drive into the city and uh, Gene, Scott and Warren um, have decided that they're just going to pull up to a random construction site, uh, change into costume and then, volunteer to do construction labor for a day to raise $14,000, the equivalent of $14,000. But when they get there, uh, Beast and Iceman are like, you know what, Uh, we got a better idea. We're going to head down to the village. Not going to tell you what the the idea is. Um, My feeling is Bobby had a very different idea of how to make money in the village. Oh, Bobby. (laughs) He's 18 now. <laughs> um, than what we eventually see. But um, so they get down, they get to this construction site. Um, they leave the, the rolls just wherever. And uh, uh, they sneak into some abandoned uh, shed with a keep out sign on it to change into costume. And, uh, you know, Warren and Scott keep a lookout while Gene changes. And uh, Warren says, I hope you don't take as long as you usually do because you're a girl. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, uh, Gene changes and, and steps out to take watch while uh, Warren and Scott go into the, the uh, shed together to change. And um, Gene That's does not good. make a comment, but <laughs> I hope you guys don't take too long in there. But um, she's spotted immediately by a construction worker who recognizes her as Marvel Girl of the X-Men uh, and wants to know what she's doing there. And uh, she manages to buy enough time <laughs> for Scott and Warren to finish changing and come out in costume. Um, over on the next page, uh, they explain that they just want to have a chance to work and help them out. And, and uh, the construction crew are like, yeah, that's great. We're so far behind. We, we could really use some mutant help, which is, you know, actually really a nice change of pace for humans in the Marvel Universe. They're, this is a very progressive work for construction workforce here. Um, and we get uh, a, a real demonstration of, of their powers. So uh, Marvel girl gets up to the top of this, um, this building and then lifts a bunch of rebar into place, which I think is like some of the heaviest stuff we've ever seen Marvel girl lift at this point. And she manages to hold it into place. Uh, she does comment about like how this is really difficult for her and she can't, hold it for too long, but luckily um, uh, Cyclops climbs up on Angel's shoulders and uh, he flies him up into place and Cyclops is able to uh, shoot the rivets into place to hold the the girders in place with his optic blasts. 
um, which is that's just a phenomenal demonstration of his his abilities there. And the crew are, are totally impressed with the X-Men. They're like, yeah, this is great. Show us your union cards. and We'll hire you. Because uh, again, this is a very progressive, you know, <laughs> strong union workforce that's being described here. Um, and uh, the X-Men are like, well, no, we don't have union cards. And they're like, whoa, we don't want to fight the unions. <laughs> uh, you're out of luck. So the X-Men uh, have to find another way to raise $14,000 in a day. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> and they have just wasted two hours doing this. This is the other thing, actually, I forgot to mention. Uh, when they split up, uh, they say, we'll meet you at Washington Square Park at noon. And I'm wondering, like, they have already at this point visited the welfare office. So they were planning to work for maybe an hour before going to meet up with Bobby and Hank. And they've been robbed already. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I am. Yeah, it's, it's late in the morning. Um, so uh, they, they leave the construction site only to find out that the rolls has been towed <laughs> because they parked it in front of a fire hydrant that they couldn't see because a sandwich board was in front of it. Because um, these are these are your, your very observant X-Men. This is before, you know, Cyclops got his perfect situational awareness, I suppose. They're high. And they're high. They're high as fuck. <laughs> I do like that New York. New York is a fun city sticker that's on the fire hydrant in that panel where they where they miss the fire hydrant. <laughs> it just says New York is a fun city, and that's the sticker on the yes. fire hydrant. I really like it. It's going to cost them forty dollars to to bail out the the rolls, which they don't even have that forty dollars. So they are they are shit out of luck, and they have to take uh they have to take the subway to the village, um, but. Uh, they are overheard by uh, this uh, this guy Tom Regal, who's also the guy who who points out that um, their car has been towed. And uh, Tom Regal, what a name! <laughs> Tom Regal uh, volunteers to drive them down to the village because he's heading over to to college uh, to uh, do something or other, something very mysterious. That he doesn't want to talk about. Uh, he's also got uh, a very mysterious box in the back of the car um, that he doesn't want anyone to touch. And he is very, very touchy about, you know, when Gene asks, what's with the box? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they pull up to Washington Square Park where um, Iceman and Beast uh, are not doing the thing that I thought they would be trying to do to raise money <laughs> in, in the village. Uh, they have simply, uh, they've, uh, uh, made a couple of uh, big ice pillars, and they are uh, juggling batons uh, for show. For show, they're doing a busking routine, which is, uh, uh, you know, a surefire way to raise fourteen thousand dollars in an afternoon. Well, and Iceman's um, got six arms, and Beast has got six legs because they're moving yeah. so fast. But also, I'm just going to picture that they're full on hallucinating <laughs> yes. like, from the weed. They're like, "Whoa, dude." That's all the explanation there possibly can be for this <laughs> panel. They don't have $40 to bail out the rolls, but they could buy all these batons somewhere in the village, um, which is great. Like it would have been, I, I think it would have been uh, a cool uh, thing if they were all like ice batons or something like that. That explains where these came from. Um, but 
sure, they're just, you know, busking, but before they can do the big pitch for money, because you, when you're busking, you, you do the whole show yes, and then exactly. you ask people for money. Uh, and, and most people don't pay, but you hope they do. And, um, before they can do that, the show gets interrupted. Sorry, have I gone past my allotted pages? This oh, you're, no, you're good. Okay. Uh, before the, the show can, um, uh, before they can, they can do their big pitch, uh, Meccano, uh, is on top of the, the brand new library that's facing Washington Square Park. And, uh, and let he, me have you, let me have you stop there. I'll take over with Meccano in a second. Is okay. That okay. Yeah. Uh, standout moments from these last few pages. We have to go back to page seven and comment on Cyclops riding on Angel's shoulders, which is the cutest fucking thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Wee! <laughs> and then he I separates think... his beam into four at the same time. Shoo, shoo, yeah. shoo, shoo. I think, you know, artists have often struggled to, to draw how Angel carries people and and still like and doesn't look stupid while he's doing it like where neither character looks weird uh there there have definitely been panels where you know like Iceman is you know full-on like piggybacking on angel and like how's he flapping his wings with all those limbs wrapped around him um and or you know the the versions where angel is just like holding them up by his pits or something and that always looks weird. Um, but this, you know, this looks like the most logical way that if I was Angel, I would carry Cyclops into battle, right? You're not going to armpit him. No. <laughs> he should probably have some sort of, like, harness built. Since he does so much carrying people, Angel should probably, his costume should have, like, some sort of, like, a like a baby Bjorn kind of situation. <laughs> but, like, for a full-grown person. Like, I think that would have been the smart choice. I would look at Angel in a harness anytime. <laughs> <laughs> wear a harness he does he, <laughs> he keeps his wings all tucked under his mm, under his clothes all the yeah. time uh zach did you have any standout moments in these early pages uh not that we haven't covered i think we've covered all of all the all the sort of the big ones um beast yeah. and Iceman in in washington square park is so great <laughs> it's so yeah cute. i agree you know what's funny i didn't even think about where they got the pin oh i muted Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I didn't even think about where I got the where they got the pins, honestly, until they got there. But I would also like think that if they knew what they were going to do, Beast probably like owns juggling pins because like, like right, like he probably has a set to show off or like train or whatever. I just I, I'm trying to think of like the moment where they all pack into the rolls and they're heading downtown, <laughs> and, and Scott is like, "Uh, Beast, what's in that bag?" What's with the big bag full of bowling pins? He pulls a Tom Regal. He's no, like, I don't want to no, no, talk about I'll it. I'll tell you later. <laughs> That's what's in Tom Regal's bag box, too. It's a bunch of bowling pins. Tom Regal. Fuck that guy, man. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about Meccano for just a minute. We're going to give some spoilers here. Tom Regal is Meccano. No mm. surprise to anybody. And we're going to learn in a few minutes that his motivation, his dad is a great philanthropist who is donating money to have a new library built. And Tom Regal is so starved for attention from his father that he steals some strength-enhancing armor from the local university. He puts it on, and his intent is to destroy the library in order to get his father's attention. Uh, let me hear your thoughts before I offer mine on uh, Meccano as a villain. And let me point out, this is the only time he's ever appeared in all of Marvel's 60 years of publication history. We will never again see Meccano with a K. There's a uh, reason. <laughs> uh, Zach, you first. What did you think of Meccano as a villain? Is he a good villain? I think the reason he goes straight 
after this is is because like his dad like talks some sense into it. Well, let's not ruin the ending, but but you know that's why you never see him again because he would he would he was obviously a wonderful villain, so he would have had a great life of crime had he not had a turn a change of heart by the end of this issue. But it, I I guess like it is funny how like they gloss over like he has a strength suit from the university. Like every college has it laying around like it's like a mascot costume. They're like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, has borrowed the strength suit from the university. Uh, they 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 say so little about him as like a person or. Other than this one, that one conceit that like he wants his dad's attention. Um, he like seems to, he does seem to like have a vendetta against books. I know it's, I know he says it's the library just because of like his dad, but he like also goes out of his way to like kind of like say, talk some shit on books. I feel like there's a line. I, I, I'm not sure if I'm remembering this correctly where he's like making, he says something about like Hemingway, like not like, like he's like happy to, he's excited to be burning the looks, the works of Hemingway or something. Yeah, I'll get there. I'll get there. Okay. All right. I'm sorry. No, no, no. You're great. It Uh, does seem like he has a personal vendetta against books, despite the whole dad thing. uh, Robin, Heather, your thoughts on McCann before we continue? I I mean, I I don't, I don't hate the idea behind this, this character. Um, it, It, you know, he's, he's just a guy who hates his dad and he's got a, you know, he, he wants some attention. Um, I, I, I think there there could have been room for this story to like relate to the X-Men somehow. Uh, these are all characters who have, you know, wildly different relationships with their parents. However, the only parents we've actually seen on panel at this point, I think are uh, Warren's parents who um, showed up at the X-Men mansion by surprise one day. And um, I think- we've seen, Jean- we've seen Jean's and Beast's parents at this point too. Oh, okay. Um, well, it would be, I mean, I just think like there would have, there's scope if we had any kind of idea how the X-Men feel about their parents, if there was like some sort of story there uh, that we could be comparing what's going on here. Uh, as it is, it's really just, you know, a story of a whole bunch of really overprivileged people who don't even, who have no concept of how privileged they are um, complaining that they don't have any money. And or they don't have enough attention and I don't like the story never really connects those two threads in a satisfying way but I I feel like there was some there was some nugget of an idea here that just doesn't really pay off unfortunately. Heather your thoughts on McKenna? Oh (laughs) McKenna. First of all that first panel of him on page 11 what the fuck is happening with his eyes? <laughs> but that's not the point. Um, I think that the concept of this villain, like his costume and the fact that he doesn't actually have any powers, but like his outfit works for him and things like that. I think that's actually really cool. I think when um, there's obviously a lot of thought put into it, like there clearly is like, that's great. Love it. But McKenna is an early post-human villain of the X-Men. But he's just an, a, a spoiled, entitled white boy. <laughs> uh, that's how he comes across to me, too. He's a billionaire's kid who just feels like the world owes him something, wants attention. And he's like, he's got the whiniest. I hope this isn't too political. He's got like a Kyle Rittenhouse energy, which is not a compliment <laughs> in any way. <laughs> He's like, come on. Uh, it's it's okay, okay. So I'm gonna read his opening his opening speech here. He's on a roof. 
He's in his suit of armor and he has brought a megaphone. He wants attention. He's screaming out at a crowd of people before he commits any crime. And he says, listen, all of you, listen and heed the words of the magnificent Meccano. You are privileged to be the first to see me in action as I demolish the new Memorial Library, which adjoins this park. Uh, but then he blames the X-Men since they've gathered the crowd. He's like, Iceman and Beast are here. They're the ones that did all of this. And now stand clear. I mean no one any harm, but I'll smash anyone who tries to bar my path. Like, I'm not going to hurt you, but also I'll fucking rip you get in front of me. <laughs> then he jumps down on a wire, full uh, seeking full attention, and jumps toward the library. Now, here we have a problem with the police who <laughs> jump in, and instead of attacking the man who is publicly threatening everything, they immediately move to arrest the X-Men. They handcuff Bobby to a pole. And they, they are like, we're not going to listen to you. What were you going to say, Rob? I was going to say, first of all, uh, he jumps down from that big arch on a cable that is suspended from nothing. Yeah, he kind of is just swinging out in the middle of nowhere, isn't he? I mean, I know this is like a, a Spider-Man trope, but it, <laughs> the, the narration actually calls attention to he he swings from a high tensile cable. From where? <laughs> But also, I, I do, I love this triptych of the the police arresting Iceman and handcuffing him and, like, straddling him as they do it. it. It looks, honestly, like it's come out of a Tom of Finland catalog. It's it's pretty rapey, actually. Yeah, the whole, the whole image. And also, Bobby's like, I'm out of ice, but he's still in ice form. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't um, understand that either, that he just ran out of ice. He's uh, high. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not ice power. Oh, I'm, I'm fucking. I'm dry today. Sorry. Oh no, <laughs> you're great. So, uh, so Beast tries to stop Mikado and calls him a masked misanthrope, which is a word I had to look up. A misanthrope is a person who dislikes human society, which is fitting. Uh, it's the opposite then, of philanthrop. Oh, okay, okay. And then a minute later, Mikado, uh, while punching Beast, calls him a bohunk. And I had to look up this word as well. A bohunk is an immigrant, an immigrant laborer, which that is an insult from this like billionaire's philanthropist son. Like that's what cemented it for me. I'm like, he used this like terrible term. I'm like, oh, nope, I'm not your fan. We're not going to. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's like the origins of just hunk, though, calling someone a hunk. I think that's where I think it comes from the same root. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure because I'm. Yeah, there's a yeah because it was like uh, what they used to call Bohemia, right? So it was the bohunk. It was like that was like the slang huh. for them. I think I, I you know I could be remembering that incorrectly, but I'm pretty sure. That's fantastic. I'll have um, to look into the origins of no. the word hunk now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think hunk has been reclaimed. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's probably fine to say hunk, but I'm not sure about bohunk. That bohunk might still have too much be too pejorative. I'm not. But sure. still, fuck you, Meccano. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so Meccano punches Beast in the face. He storms through the library, continually bragging about all of his strength. Uh, he he's gonna make sure he gets his dad's attention. And he immediately goes into the book section. And here's where I'll read his speech out loud again. He goes, Shakespeare, Zola, Hemingway, all of the overrated push pencil pushers of days past, down with all of them and up with Meccano. Uh, followed by, this is the time of the man of action, the will to power, not a time for useless words. And then he shoves a bookcase over. He's pissed. That that speech, see, here's the thing, is that speech, like, flies in the face of, like, all of his other motivation. Like, that speech, like, feels like he's a different character all of a sudden, where for one panel, he decides that his message and his point is to, like, is that he's, like, I, I, cause I thought when I read that panel, I was like, oh, well, maybe he's, like, 
an author who's like mad because his books won't get published because <laughs> it like really paints him in a suddenly different light. But no, none of he, that. He just needs some attention. Mm -hmm. uh, the police close in with guns drawn on Cyclops and Angel. Marvel Girl knocks them over, takes their guns with her telekinesis. And uh, then they battle Mikado in the library for a couple pages. He throws some books at them. Cyclops' optic blast causes a small fire on the ground, which we go back to, is it a force ray or a laser or a heat ray? We go back to, back and forth sometimes in the old comics over that. Uh, Mikado feels overwhelmed, rips the door off its hinges, and runs up to the roof to try to escape. But the X-Men are hot on his heels. Oh, no, he's not going to the roof. Excuse me. He's going audio to the audio-visual section of the library to destroy more things. Uh, he's, uh, he's he's ridiculous. Uh, and then, uh, Zach, do you want to take us through the final five pages? Tell us how the, the, the battle concludes. Yeah, so uh, the first page, we got this really nice flash, I got to say, just real quick, of him ripping the audiovisual equipment out. <laughs> it's this, like, inferior shot of, like, his crotch, and he's just, like, swinging these very Kirby-esque machines that exist in the audiovisual room. And then it's followed by... What I have to say is the, the best panel in the entire book. It's like a meme-worthy Cyclops expression. I almost thought about making, I still might make it my avatar on Twitter because I like this drawing of Cyclops <laughs> so much. It's the derpiest, dumbest looking face. And it's just this intense close-up of Cyclops just making the dumbest face. Um, anyway, he proceeds to like destroy the, the audio, Mechano destroys the audio-visual room. Then, right, you, you just said something about like how Cyclops, they just showed his blast like catching something on fire. Then he does something completely opposite with it where it's a, definitely a force right where he like slows down an object that's hurtling towards him with his blast and this is something that like as someone who's read enough x-men to know that like oh well it's like a kinetic blast or whatever i know that like technically but i've never seen him do something like this where he like catches an object with it i don't know is that is that a is that a thing has anyone else seen anyone who knows x-men better there, it, there is um the the one example that comes to mind is uh from the uh, Claremont and Burn run when they're in the Savage Land and Wolverine is falling from, I think Sauron has dropped him or he's falling off a cliff or something. And Cyclops just looks up and there's a panel of him like pulsing his optic blast at Wolverine's butt so that he like falls more gently to the ground. Oh, okay. All right, so so he does he does go to this trick again. Okay, well that's that's good to know. I didn't I had never seen him do something like that or didn't know that was in Cyclops' wheelhouse. Um, well, Cyclops they, back, Cyclops back then it, it was often portrayed like the amount that he opens his visor is the amount mm -hmm. of force that's going to escape, right? So it can sometimes be like a little thin precision beam that can like do surgical procedures or like yeah. or it could be like very fine where you're picking one wire out of the whole bomb kit you know but yeah. it also can be the giant thing that shoots the 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 uh the satellite out of the sky uh, but yeah this is a weird this is a weird version of his powers here for sure or he can do a bunch of rivets at once um yeah <laughs> uh, yeah and so honestly so the next like page or so is just him fighting um with the X-Men and he he grabs Angel at one point and uses him as a human shield, but he really doesn't stick with that plan for long and then flings Angel at Cyclops and Beast. Because at this point, it's just, it's the three of them up in the mix fighting in the audio, what, what has to be the world's biggest audio visual room in this library. So I guess, I guess maybe it is a really nice, it is gonna be a really nice library one day. Well, and as um, he throws the Angel, he says, if you want your fellow freak so bad, you can have him hard. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> And then Angel goes out of his way to like mention something. We get another feet. We get another feet pick here. I got. I also like to point that out. Another Bigfoot in your face yep. style. Um, 
And then, uh, but apparently it doesn't hurt them that bad because Angel uses his wings to slow down mid-flight after he's thrown as a projectile. Um, and then this is something, you know, a little bit, I think the editor missed this one, I got to say. There's there's one point where he's, so he jumps out of the window like a, like a grasshopper, uh, according to Beast. And then, but then a couple of pages later, he says something about, there was like, there was one part, maybe I missed it already, where he says he's hopping. Oh, no, you know, this is a couple pages ago where he says he's hopping around like a kangaroo. And then here he says, oh, I'm going to like, I'm going to jump. But I don't know how the jumping works in this suit. And it's like, ah, you were just said you were jumping around like a kangaroo, pal. So like, let's <laughs> let's figure out where, how, how familiar you are with how the suit works. He calls himself a human kangaroo, which is a way better code name than Meccano, by the way. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's not intimidating, but it is like more memorable. Like if he was the human kangaroo, I bet he would have come back in like a Deadpool issue or something. But, like <laughs> Meccano is like, no, you're not coming back. There are two Spider-Man villains named the kangaroo, by the way. Oh. See, there you go. They, maybe it was just, they were like, we got other bigger plans for the kangaroo. <laughs> you, can't, you can't be the kangaroo, bud. Um, then you get the first shot of his philanthropist dad stepping out of the, the car just in time to see the, the masked man, Meccano, flying through the air. Um, but Meccano goes to catch himself and grabs onto the, the edge of a building. So I guess he did miss time the jump pretty bad. Um, and then the building, the edge of the edge crumbles and he goes, he starts plummeting. And then Marvel Girl's outside and she, Jean catches him midair. Um, and I guess she's tired from having done the girders earlier because um, she, has, she has a hard time holding him after holding like five girders at once, which seems like a weird sort of power balance. I can't imagine the suit weighs that much. But um, also this is, this like shines on this really like very specific, like sexist point in this book. Cause like earlier when they're running into the building, they, they like Cyclops goes out of his way. I remember to be like, Gene, you wait outside. You're too fragile and womanly or whatever to be in here. And then they run. And then like at the end, they're like fighting him and having no luck. And Gene just like grabs him and is like, I'm just going to hold him here. Like, it's fine. Like she just could have handled the problem so quickly. If they had just sent her in initially, she could have just like stopped it right away. Anyway, they had no faith in Gene apparently at this point. Um, and then you end up with, uh, very quick then the the resolution comes really fast because you have uh his dad they capture meccano because gene grabs him um the police come over his dad's like hey i know your voice you're my shitty son um so it's, <laughs> so it's, so it's mr regal i don't know if they name him but and his tom regal um and then he explains his whole motivation how and this is another shot of him like tom regal looking crazy wide eye he's got crazy eyes here although to be fair he is kind of crazy but he's got a real crazy expression here when he goes on his whole speech about how his dad didn't pay attention to him, blah, blah, blah. The fun twist here, guess what? X-Men get their money because the billionaire dad or whatever gives them the money. He, he wants to reward them. And the X-Men are like, no, no, we can't take your money, but we do need airfare to Europe and we'll pay you back. They, they go out of their way to say that they're going to pay him back with like Professor X's money, which is funny. They're like, no, 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 don't worry about it. We got it. I mean, this other guy's got it. This other old rich guy's got it. Uh, so, so then they, uh, so then he gives them the check. So they have their money. Um, and then this is like one of my favorite parts of the issue is. So after he hands over the check and he's like, his dad's like, you're going to have some explaining to do for stealing that suit. And, and uh, the kid just straight up is like, he says, 
I sure do, Dad, but it won't be so hard with you there. And so he's just like <laughs> falling right back into the same shitty spoiled kid patterns where he's like, his dad's going to bail him out again. Obviously, I feel like this isn't the first time he's pulled some shit like this because his dad's just like so immediately like, oh, all right. Yeah, this happens. Don't worry about it. He like waves the cops off because the cops are like, uh, and he's like, no, this is my fucking library. Just it's fine. We'll handle this. This is like family business. This is like, you know, whatever. Um, so anyway, so he doesn't, Tom Regal really doesn't learn. He clearly does not learn a lesson here. He just, he just gets bailed out by his dad. And then right after that happens, there's this little like, um, like head, not headline, like, uh, you know, transition box, which explains like, says, now while you sentimental bullpenners reach for a dry hanky, let's skip ahead a bit to the Metropolitan Airport. And it's like, you thought, you thought this was like sentimental? Like, I, I mean, I know they're being like kind of facetious and like cheeky or whatever, but it does feel a little bit like they thought maybe they had hit a moment <laughs> like like that maybe it's like oh this might have a little bit of a little bit of weight to it like he's you know it's a family thing but they like just totally totally missed it um, the reason my hanky is dry is because i have no tears over this boring issue <laughs> yeah and then and then at the very end i don't really understand because i didn't read the previous issues leading up to it but it goes back to they're getting on the airplane and whoever this is the uh the villain of who's kidnapped professor x basically says there's just like a little little cliffhanger at the end but um they'll never reach us alive so factor three is the group that's kidnapped professor x they've been hinted at for a full year we've literally never seen them we've seen them come some of their robots this is the first image we get from behind we will learn this character next issue is the iconic amazing character the changeling who most people don't know about, but he actually has a pretty big impact on uh, on the X-Men in different forms. We'll talk about him more next issue. But Heather, have you seen the animated series? I have not. Okay, no. you guys both have. So this character is the basis for the character Morph from the animated series. Uh, but look at his stupid fucking hat here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought he was some sort of alien. Is he, is he, not, he's a, is he a mutant or an alien? He's a mutant. Oh, okay. Yep. He's just got a silly hat for a mutant. That's all. So a couple <laughs> panels before when, when Mr. Regal is handing them the check and Cyclops says, thank you, sir. We'll find a way to repay you somehow. Cue the porn music. Don't, don't. There's, <laughs> there's a scene right after this scene change. Maybe they already earned their fare. Bobby's already handcuffed. <laughs> He's already strapped down. Uh, what do you guys have completely forgotten about Iceman at this point too, by the way. What do you oh, guys yeah, that's think, true. What do you guys think happened to Meccano after this? Assuming he's still in universe, what uh, what became his story after the conclusion of this issue? Well, two years ago, he was appointed to the Supreme Court of the United States of America. <laughs> <laughs> I feel about right. Like he probably just failed up, like and had his you know his rich dad like probably sent him off to you know an Ivy League, and he probably did like I'm sure his life he was already in college. I'm sorry, he was already in college here, but like you know, I mean. I think, he joined, I think he joined Hydra and was a very mediocre agent. <laughs> That's my prediction. Uh, I have a question for you specifically, Zach. I'm going to put you on the spot. Back on page 11, Cyclops refers to Meccano as a hooded ham bone. If you were to create a villain called the hooded ham bone to, to fight the, the Great Lakes Avengers, what would his powers be? A hooded ham bone... 
<laughs> sounds like a really like a 1950s euphemism for a penis. Like it does. <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like an uncircumcised penis. So it'd probably be like something with circumcision. Like honestly, like maybe he's like that's his crusade. He's like super anti-circumcision, right? And so he's like going around to hospitals. You know, this actually isn't a bad pitch for Great Lakes Avengers. That actually probably would have worked. <laughs> he's going around to hospitals and like trying to attack like parents who were. Uh, wanting to circumcise their children. I mean, and he's got ham in the name already. So he's, he's already, uh, there's probably some anti-Semitic uh, <laughs> connection in there as well. I mean, it's already not kosher, so. <laughs> Your explanation was everything I hoped for. <laughs> now for our longtime listeners, it's been, it feels like it has not been an X-Men book for a little while. We've got the X characters just fighting bizarre random people issue after issue. Next issue, we actually get some tie-ins. Uh, and this is spoilers for those who haven't read, but they're, you know, 50 years later. But we get the return of the Vanisher and Blob and Eudis the Untouchable and Mastermind, who have been out of the books, all of them, for quite some time. Vanisher since issue number two. Uh, so we we get revelations finally about Factor 3. Uh, we're going to be joined back next time on Grey Malkin Lane with the writer Ron Mars, which we are super uh, excited about. It's going to be really fun to interview him uh, and then uh, uh, we've got lots of stuff coming up after that. As we are concluding today, let me just say thank you to all three of you. This is so much fun to just nerd out with, with fellow passionate nerds. Uh, if you have any final thoughts on this issue today or how it impacted you, uh, please feel free to share. And then let us know where people can find you online and what we might be able to do uh, or to look forward to if you have anything coming up or coming out that we should be excited about. Uh, let's go in the order of Zach, Rob, and then Heather. Uh, no, I don't have anything coming out. <laughs> like everything I'm working on right now is like such a long projection uh, or is under NDA where like I can't talk about it. So uh, yes and no. Uh, yes and no. And okay. you find me online. I, I mean, I guess like I, 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 you know, you probably find me on Twitter at Zach Romania or I guess that's it. That's not like the only thing I use anymore. Um, so yeah, that's it. Not very exciting. <laughs> and then Rob. Um, yeah, uh, I don't have anything coming up right now, but uh, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Rob Salerno uh, or uh, read Iceman is a Homosexual over at my blog uh, at therobsalerno.com. Uh, I'll have uh, a new article up uh, covering uh, the X-Men's 30th anniversary year and Fatal Attractions in 1993 uh, coming up in uh, a week or so. And let me just ask you, were there any signs that Iceman is a homosexual in this particular issue? In this particular issue? I mean, like, you know, he surrenders to these cops really quickly um, <laughs> who, you know, they just straddle him. And, and this cop yes. is putting his crotch right in Iceman's face. And I, I think that that is the only explanation for why Iceman is not fighting this. And $1,400 later, they're on their way to Europe. <laughs> And Heather. Um, I also don't have anything coming up except for trying to figure out unemployment and new jobs. Um, so fun. But you can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Heather underscore Beth underscore. Uh, this was a lot of fun, you guys. Thank you so much for nerding out with us. Uh, thank you, Rob. Thank you, Heather. And thank you in particular, Zach. It's great to get to know you, man. Um, any final words before we wrap up? for having me. Yeah, so, so glad you were here. Okay, we'll see you guys back next time on Grey Malton Lane. <laughs> <laughs>